Welcome to the Seeing Gene Podcast. I'm Matthew Jaber Stifler, Research and Content Manager at the Arab American National Museum. The Seeing Gene Podcast highlights the voices of contemporary Arab American writers. It is brought to you by the Center for Arab American Studies and the Arab American National Museum, and funded by the University of Michigan Arts Initiative and the Ford Community Development Fund. Joining us today is Khaled Motawa, born and raised in Benghazi, Libya. Poet Khaled Matawa relocated to the United States as a teenager in 1979. He earned a BA in political science and economics from the University of Tennessee, an MA and MFA from Indiana University, and a PhD from Duke University. He is the editor of Michigan Quarterly Review and currently teaches at the University of Michigan. Matawa's poetry frequently explores the intersection of culture, narrative, and memory. He has been awarded several Pushcart Prizes and the Penn Award for Literary Translation, in addition to a translation grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship, and a MacArthur Fellowship, a.k.a. the Genius Grant. Matawa has published several collections of poetry. In addition to writing his own work, he has left lasting contributions to the field through his translation and his work editing and co-editing anthologies of Arab-American writing. Khaled is a colleague and a friend, and I am honored to be talking about his latest book, Fugitive Atlas, published by Grey Wolf Press. Khaled, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Matt. Good to see you and good to meet and talk about poetry for the museum. Yeah, I haven't seen you in a while. I mean, I've been talking to you about different projects at the university and things happening in the community, but it's nice to, to really see you face to face and have a chance to talk. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm hoping it, it sort of comes to an end. It's become a different kind of efficiency to live life uh, on Zoom. Everything is nearby. It's only from the, your bedroom to your office that the world begins. But it's also <laughs> sort of strange, sort of a much limited social encounter. So I, I think it's done as good. And it's amazing that we've had this available to us. But it'll be nice to combine it with real life encounters. So have you been doing a lot of readings on the computer? I've done around 10. And interestingly, you know, people log in from everywhere. That's the that's the advantage of it. They've done some in the U.S. where people have logged in from uh, all across the country and even from abroad. And uh, I'm sure you prefer reading in front of a live audience, but is, have you adapted to the Zoom readings? I guess I have, usually accompanied with um, kind of an interview format. You read for a little bit, then you get to ask questions just to sort of liven things up. Uh, but no, I do miss the live audience, if only because you're, you're standing and you're performing and uh, you, you have the whole sort of layout of it. Some people do a whole performance on Zoom. Uh, I've not been prepared for that and I'm not a big performance poet as such so I've not adjusted to that. <laughs> well thank you for, for joining us on the podcast and so can you tell us a little bit about uh, your new book Fugitive Atlas and then uh, introduce uh, the pieces you're going to read for us. The book is maybe uh, the work uh, of sort of 10 years the previous book was uh, Tocqueville it was uh, if you were a, a really kind of an American book or preoccupied with the life in America. It's a tangential response, perhaps, and an updating to uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, Democracy in America. And then right after that, the uh, Arab uh, uprisings, revolutions began. 
And my life and our life as a family was transformed and changed in many good and interesting ways with that. And so the book be, really sort of begins with that time. It goes back. It's not so much about the, the past doesn't play a big role in this uh, book, uh, but it does. The, the, the revolutions begin with it. But I also I'm taking account of the neighborhood or the area we live in, the various conflicts that, that we've seen over the the decade. So it is a kind of a, a reading of the decade. And it, it is um, called Fugitive Atlas. Uh, the word refugees is a little less maybe dramatic, but it is about the decade of displacement, war, a lot of environmental degradation makes it through this book. And also the revolutions themselves and uh, some of the aspirations and, and disappointments that uh, we've experienced through them. It sort of takes account of, of the various facets of um, this decade in, in my life, but in the life of the world. Part of the story is, of course, uh, raising a, a daughter who's now in her 13th year of almost 14 uh, it, during that time. So she's kind of like a Virgil to my Dante, if you will. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. I look forward to talking about the book more. Please introduce uh, the selections you're going to uh, read for us now. So I'll read a sequence of poems called Beatitudes. It does sort of introduce my child, the daughter, as a part of the storytelling. I'm going to read four sections. I published them as one poem in a journal, but in the book I broke them into, into the four sections because each one of them uh, introduces a new aspect, if you will, of the, of the atlas. Beatitudes. One. My child wants to know if the mountains really cowered. How do you know when the sea or a river is afraid? How do you know when the sky is thinking yes or no? And him? Why did he say yes? Did he know that all the other creatures refused the burden? That he was God's last choice, too? Did you really have a party the day the dictator died? And you had a cake decorated with all the flags? Did you think his death will fix everything? Why did we spend all that time there? And all those people fighting, fleeing, and drowning, what are they hoping for? Three. She speaks to me in our language, in front of her friends, to share a secret, or cool and beaming to show off. I wonder how long it will last, this pride, this intimacy. Sometimes she puts her arm next to mine and tells me I have the lighter skin. Why are you doing this, I ask. But she doesn't point to the flag or say it's the way of the world. Instead, she tells me not to worry, that she's the most kid kid in my class, the least mature one, Baba. Not all kinds of wisdom console, I tell her. Then I begin to think of words she'll soon hear that can make her wish she wasn't who she is. Lead me to virtue, O oh love, through the smoke of despair. Four. Let's walk through the woods, she tells me. Let's walk by the rocky shore at sunrise. Let's walk through the clover fields at noon. 
In the rainforest, she's silent, mesmerized. She'd never prayed. We never taught her. But she seemed to then, eyes alert with joy. She points to a chameleon the size of a beetle, teaches me the names of flowers and trees, insects we can eat if we're ever lost here. I'm teaching you how to entrust the world to me, she says. You don't have to live forever to shield me from it. Thank you, Khaled. You know, there's so much movement throughout the book across place and space. And I loved the introduction of your daughter through the Beatitudes because for me, it was a lot of violence and environmental issues and uh, conflict and crisis happening in the book. And every time I came to one of the Beatitudes, it was kind of like a, a mindfulness technique to remind you to like feel yourself like, okay, I'm human. I'm in this moment. This moment is now. It's real. And it was very grounding for, for me as a reader to to have her voice there. And it's interesting that you originally published them as one poem, but then broke them up for the book. Yeah, I mean, I think the book needed some of these uh, moments of rest because the material is intense. And I, I, the truth is, I, I don't really know what else to do about a lot of the intensity. Uh, it's just been such a focus of my attention, uh, the, the Mediterranean migrant crisis, the violence we saw in Libya. And, you know, even, even towards the end, I wrote the, well, there's a poem, a long poem about, a uh, longer poem about, uh, Charlottesville, which seemed to me necessary to, to, uh, to incorporate and to include. And uh, she's there too. She's sort of like that grounding moment. And it's interesting how much the ground, these grounding moments are actually moments of hope. All we do is just remember that in our daily life is very safe and that could actually continue. But the anxieties and the worries are, are, are really tremendous when you, when you think about it. But, um, uh, this is on the day on which, uh, or after which we, you know, we've been hearing the news about what happened in Atlanta and another shooter. Now there's another community that's been targeted for, for a year. And now, okay, it's exploded into, uh, a, a kind of a mass shooting or one assassin moving from one location to another targeting uh, Asian folks. Uh, such, such a horrible thing to think about, but. That's that's where the momentum has been going for for some time. So um, I'm hoping it will slow down. But that's that's the world we live in now, unfortunately. And yeah, the book feels like a chronicling of kind of the tragedies that are constantly all around us that you just don't think about all the time. The title is Atlas. It's clearly a a book of places. You know, as a historian myself, I I see this as an encyclopedia of the world events. I can see myself going back to this book years from now to think like, what what was it like? What was happening? And even, you know, you and I are both in Ann Arbor and Ann Arbor shows up in here that beneath our feet is this, this noxious plume that they're not even sure just how bad the effects of this might be. And so, you know, even in this idyllic college town, we're dealing with crisis and it's, it's there. It's a constant reminder. You had, you have an important role of chronicling these tragedies. I mean, I I totally forgot that there's still this migrant crisis where people are trying to flee from North Africa to to Europe and in your poems reminded me that this is still it is still a daily experience for a lot of people even if over here we're focused on 
coronavirus and Donald Trump. So I, I think the book is extremely important for this moment to to chronicle all that. And history does play a role. Sometimes there's synthesis. Uh, there's a, a poem uh, about occupation. Occupation for us people from the Arab world, occupation has been a reality uh, and a source of anguish and a, a seedbed for violence. When I think about like even Libya, how much a lot of the violence we that the country has gone through the last few years. It goes back to actually the colonial period, uh, which was only maybe 30 years in Libya or even less than that. But how much that sort of broke societies and implanted uh, divisions and let there be uh, these sort of conflicts that, that were never resolved. Uh, and when violence was the option, uh, they were, you know, that was what came through. So uh, so when I, when I was thinking about occupation and how much it sort of foments conflict uh, I, I I resorted to Libya to uh, the Congo to Iraq and to Palestine as a, as a sort of a story it felt like I couldn't really chronicle that one spot only without the moment extends further into a hundred years back or so uh, so that's where that thought about what what it's like to to you know live on your land and to live in Libya in some cases to live on your land and to be put in a concentration camp. Uh, this happened in the 1930s in Libya. And that's a you know trauma that just kind of gets passed on and begins to express itself in uh, repressed uh, violence that uh, that just can erupted after the regime uh, uh, of Gaddafi uh, came down. Uh, and you can imagine what it's like in. In, in many other places where uh, this is ongoing as well. It is a, you know, a survey of our time, but we can't survey our times without going back uh, in time to just survey the roots of, of some of these tensions. Some of your poems are very explicit about where they're taking place, the actors, the time. And some of the other ones, unless you go to the notes at the end of the book, are a little bit more, could stand in for lots of places. So, for instance, in the poem Face, where if you look at the notes, it's about Iraq, but really that's just about U.S. military aggression and the faceless people that are victims and how we put so much attention on the soldiers for the U.S. And even then, those those victims uh, are not paid attention to in the end. And I, I felt like I was reading that and I'm like, this this is Iraq. And then I was like, no, this is, this is Palestine. No, he's talking about Libya. And then, you know, and, and then it didn't matter at the end. It was like, it doesn't matter to me what, where you were referring to that. Um, it's just a stand in for some of the issues that are happening. And so I loved that play between like very specific time and place. And then just, this could be anywhere or anything. Yeah. That was actually an interesting tension in that poem because precisely when you were hearing about Iraq, maybe even as as far back as the early 90s, before the 2003 war, there might have been a, a million people who have been malnourished to death or children not receiving medicine and dying and all of just, you know, you know outcome of the first of Desert Storm. 
And that was the time when Secretary Albright uh, said, yes, the deaths of all Iraqi civilians were worth it. You know, that was supervised by a Democrat, more enlightened administration. And so it kept on. And even after the the, uh, the Second War, and again, the, the, whether it's Fallujah or uh, Blackwater uh, killings and so forth, the, the continual... Uh, defacing of Iraqi victims. Uh, again, I mean, that's that's how imperialism works and what the people you kill are, are not human. I really struggled with to what extent to reveal. And I, I guess I wanted the poem to sort of struggle with, with having that being voiced, but at the same time having us struggle with the fact that, you know, there are a million people out there, a million plus, which is what we would call that number. And I guess the lack of, you know, locational specificity is because there's so much actual information about Iraq. It doesn't come out. But in, in a sense, it was important to have the drama kind of take almost an ahistorical representation to be um, a, a sort of a more theatrical, if you will, voicing. I, I imagine that this could be you know, dramatized, and you would hear the conflicts between the occupier and the occupied, uh, the, the the killer and the killed talking in these sort of uh, almost, uh, you know, mythological, essential moments, uh, so that we're grounded by the, by the very bare facts and also inherently familiar uh, uh, fact of killer and killed. It was, again, sort of walking away from the facts into the trying to avoid the word biblical, but yes, that's the sort of that's the kind of mythological iconic moment I was seeking in that conversation. But I think it was also important to sort of account for what the mindset of sort of someone who is ordinary and sheltered, and how this becomes a kind of a reverberation of uh, of violence. The the irony of of course of the poem is about an U.S. soldier who basically loses their face to the war. That's the sort of like, that's the trigger of the poem. Uh, It was a very famous photograph in the 2006 or so uh, of the soldier who became highly disfigured. His face had had to go dozens of surgeries in order to to give him a kind of face. So that's the title of the poem, Face. What does it represent? And then, of course, there are these people who are defaced in the meantime. So... Yeah, it was a, a poem that I, I think the earliest draft I wrote of this poem was early on in the war, maybe 2004. And then it just stayed and stayed and, and just sort of begged for more and more attention until I think I published it in a journal around 2017. So, Yeah, I mean, so a lot of the works in this book have been underway for a while. I know that I think we're approaching, it's March 2021 right now, and we're approaching 10 years since... Gaddafi fell or was removed, right? The the writing of 42 years later. So it's about, was it 2011, right? Yeah, 20, the, the revolution started in February 2011. He was killed on October 23rd, 2011. So like eight months later. So yeah, so there are two poems that sort of frame the Libyan revolution. One is the uh, one is called uh, "Now That We Have Tasted Hope," which is at the beginning of the revolution, and then the other one is um, is called "After Forty Two Years" about about Gaddafi's murder, 
And then I had to revisit that event and what happened to, with the country uh, six or seven years later as to revisiting the 42 years and the, and the sort of the non-conversation that was happening in Libya. Essentially, everybody's, there are people desiring democracy, talking one way, and those who are, who've lost kind of a lifestyle and a, a comfortable sort of living wage that was guaranteed by the government. And then there's Gaddafi himself talking about, you know, you, you can remove me, but then when you have mob rule, then it's much worse. Uh, it's interesting how he sort of defended dictatorship and even saw the moment when the dictator was going to be removed and how the mob will be worse than one person. I say this about Libya now when things are actually improving. Libya has seen maybe three peaceful transitions of power within, or maybe four, within this decade. So after one person dictating the terms and killing thousands, okay, we had a civil conflict, but um, now we've had one government surrender to another, not by force, uh, by negotiations and conversations and so on. So there's there's something to be proud of about just... The fact that people are not going to be in power forever, and that seems to have sort of come into uh, the Libyan political mindset, and that when your time is done, you hand things over to other people who are selected or elected somehow. So um, I think that that's an achievement despite the conflicts. So let's step outside of the book for a moment, and let's talk about Libya. You don't just write about Libya. I mean, you and your partner, Reem, uh, Jabril, who's a visual artist herself, have done lots of work in Libya in the last uh, 10 years or so. Can you talk a little bit about your arts work and uh, that you've been doing over there? Yeah, we had been familiar with Libya before the the revolution and we knew that there was a that it was a difficult place to come into being as a as a young artist our thought was uh we wanted to uh sort of fill in the gap and sort of try to expose people to what was happening in the arts around the world and also to try to provide some training for young artists so one of the cinemas had not been in Libya they were sort of closed by the mid 80s uh, Part of it VCR, part of it the you know American boycott. Part of it is just that you know just the, the whole government-run uh, uh, culture sector was just uh, repressed and of course uh, corrupt. So we wanted to familiarize the new filmmakers with uh, with cinema. So we had a cinema club and we showed classic films and new films. And we did that for about two and a half years and showed uh, upwards of uh, 100 films. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, the, as in Syria and so on, video and filmmaking and documenting was uh, was very a big part of that. So we wanted to support that by sort of introducing some of the young people to the idea of uh, video art and so trying to turn this skill set skill set that was coming into the country into artistic practice so we did these video art shows outdoors uh, at night against the walls of of the old city and uh, and so that was uh, uh, along with some workshops. We did some translation workshops, creative writing workshops, workshops for cultural management. So it was uh, this went on for 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 three years until things got very intense in Tripoli, and we we couldn't. I had to come back to my work here. Uh, but we continued to support other organizations by with fundraising. 
We did uh, an anthology, which was unfortunately, uh, uh, I think it was a very successful anthology, but there were parts of it that were very objectionable. But we managed to present the uh, the new generations of writers, and some of them are beginning to publish their own books now, uh, and we're staying with them. Another uh, project we're working on is uh, a kind of photographic memoir, collective photographic memoir of uh, of Libya that's going on right now. Uh, we're, we're, we have two people that are running the project and so on. So we also have a poetry website that publishes an international poem uh, every day, and we're working on a project trying to train Libyan filmmakers on how to make art inspired by poetry, because we feel like that could be a really good training for filmmakers and also for painters, perhaps. Supporting young artists, uh, writers and else, and, uh, you know, and other forms of art. But also we began to see the importance of, um, of these sort of collective projects of uh, projects that sort of highlight uh, national identity and that highlight uh, um, a collective experience which had not been as well represented in the past. Maybe more than anybody else, the, the artists are highly invested in, uh, in the idea of, uh, of uh, a nation that embraces everyone's uh, desires and possibilities. Wow, that's really commendable. I love I love seeing that. I know that can't be easy considering you also have like seven other jobs here in the US. And so that's that's kind of what you do with your spare spare time, I guess. Yeah, I'm always behind. It's that's always that's the truth of my existence. There's the, the you know, always a little bit behind and then uh, you learn to make things much faster, which actually in America people are not used to. Libya teaches you that oh, we're going to have an exhibit next week. Uh okay, let's work on it. And America people can't, you know, they <laughs> panic, but in Libya it's like, "Oh, let's next week. That's the best opportunity." And so 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 uh it's hard to bring that kind of um, pace uh, of delay and then, you know, hurry up yeah. and wait that sort of the, the Libyan existence under the American one. Like, you know, people invited to dinner of like four months in advance sometimes. Oof. Uh, four months from now, people will live and people will die. And he's like, oh, okay, but I'll, I'll agree to come to dinner four months from now. <laughs> Could you imagine bringing that kind of pace to the journal world where somebody submits something to you at the quarterly review and like a week later you publish it? Like, yes, we'll publish this this week. This is great. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's what, what the website is for. And, that's true. Uh, that's you true. know, when we began the COVID uh, situation, we wanted people to write us stuff. Uh, you know, very recently we had we had people write us from Marseille and from... I think from Cairo and Maine. So we had some of those pieces assigned and we wanted them fairly, fairly quick. So, uh, yeah, so we do a little bit of journalism, but, um, uh, but no, with the journal world or like art exhibits, it has to be way in advance. So, so let's bring it back to the U.S. Let's talk about the Arab American community. This is a podcast about Arab American writers. You have been heavily involved in the field. Uh, your whole career, editing anthologies, being involved with uh, Rawi, the radius of Arab American writers. Can you talk about what draws you to the world of Arab American literature? When I was sort of introduced to the idea of Arab American, I was, you know, I was, I had my green card. This was in the early nineties. Uh, it was, it was going to be difficult to go to Libya after you're living in America for nearly half your life. 
And also, having decided to become a writer in English, I just didn't know how that would sort of pan out. Uh, I was also, if I were, you know, ultimately going to return, I knew that the prospects of there was not going to be something I was into. So becoming American was sort of like, I sort of cornered myself into that. But then, of course, becoming American technically, but like, you know, what sort of identity would one fall into? I knew about ADC. I was uh, I read Grape Leaves as a as an anthology for inspiration, but there was something about even the writings people were writing about when I was thinking of these. Oh, so Arab American is people that are second generation whose parents had come as immigrants. Most of them are uh, Lebanese, Syrian, maybe Palestinian background who are living in Pennsylvania as Elmas was or, or Detroit. You know, I was living in Tennessee so where there was no Arab American anything. It was, you know, just this, you know, this sort of an extension of this sort of mysterious uh, Mahjar. Then I was, you know, embraced by the community and Barbara Nume Aziz, whom I'm sure she's part of this conversation, her name will come up, reached out when my book came out. Some people also reached out as well. And uh, and we began this conversation. I remember meeting Lisa Mejaj, uh in um, in Boston. I think it was 1994. So it was at that time when I began to sort of know more people. Just sort of said, "Well, you know, this is this is what we think." I wasn't even a citizen then, but it seemed like the the right place. I was writing in American English. I was writing about, okay, about my memories, not so much about my hyphenated existence. But that was the community that I was uh, invited into. Once I was in in the community and I began to be familiar with what's being written, I was also uh, feeling, uh, you know, the sort of the, you know, Great Blues had been out maybe for... Uh, ten years, the courses were being beginning to develop. I was interested in in uh, in teaching a course in Arab American literature, and part of me was also f- slightly frustrated with what is being written. Like, what what is it? How do you make your imprint as an Arab American writer? And um, you know, how, you know, where do you start? And it was a lot of it was sort of like a cliched versions of the cultural divide, or I'm torn between here and torn between there, and so on. And so the poems were sort of beginning to flag. Uh, Diana had written a novel, Diana Abu Shaber, uh, but there hadn't been other novels. And so when we put together post-Gibran, the idea was, okay, people are clearly writing. Maybe we're hitting a second phase, but are not... Uh, it's sort of not coming out as such. The call we put out was, let's have people who are writing poetry turn drama, give us drama, and those who are writing plays to give us poems, it's uh, essays, you know, so just try yourself in a different genre. Maybe this will really open things up. We published some translations. So in a sense, what post Brown tried to do is to sort of stretch the idea of our aesthetic experiences, but also try to widen. We included some translations or retranslations of Andalusian poems, thinking that that would be part of um, Arabo-Andalusian poems as part of the practice of Arab-American literature, whereby we are as widely engaged with uh, Arab culture and Arab experience, not just now in America, but worldwide and historically. Ital Adnan sent us a play. 
we had these translations. I can't remember exactly all that is there is in uh, in post-Jibran now, but Lisa Major sent us a uh, uh, story, I mean, an essay and some poems. And we had a really a wide representation uh, of, uh, of what was published. There were people who were published in that anthology and not ever after. <laughs> it was an eclectic piece, uh, but that's how sort of our representation of, of what was happening in the community in an exciting way, I think, happened. The other project came out when the novels were about to come out. And so when these were happening, we said, well, okay, we need a fiction anthology now. And, uh, and so we sought short stories because there hadn't been there. So, and it went on. We did an anthology again, and then, well, well there isn't one. And nonfiction is the most recent. The engagement with the Arab-American community was to bring books together, open up uh, the possibilities of, of, of our literature, provide materials for people to teach in a, in a sort of collected way. And uh, and from the book, the short stories, Arkansas agreed to work with Hayan to do a book of, of, uh, of poetry, and now with the nonfiction anthology, there is a body of um, of Arab American literature that's about maybe nearly 800 pages big, enough for a course, definitely, that people can say, well, here it is. Uh, this is what our community is thinking about. This is what we're experiencing. And of course, there's the project has gone on and on. And on. With Rawi, again, it was bringing people together. And one of the things that I wanted to emphasize again with Rawi is that we um, we try to have translation as part of the conversation. We try to widen the, the sort of the generational gap. We recognize the older writers with the new writers. And also we try to figure out what's happening with Arab diaspora elsewhere. So we, we um, invited Arab poets from... Um, from uh, Iraq, one Iraqi writer who was in Germany. Rabbi Alamadine was uh, writing in English, but the, I think the idea of, and he was living in Lebanon most of the time, so the idea, he was kind of a global Anglophone Arab writer, not so much an Arab-American, but he came to our first conference. And uh, and then the second time around, we brought writers for, who were writing, or for, of Arab background, who were uh, living in England, uh, Hisham Matar and uh, Fadia Fakir, and, and uh, we brought also some African American writers who were friendly to the Arab community. After Rawi, I sort of like I'm gonna swear off public engagement and uh, and just really focus on my writing. And then after the Rawi conference, by like nine months, the Arab Spring began, and I was sucked into uh, <laughs> another. Uh, Another, you know, engagement with the world. I, I can't help it, but it's. I also think that uh, I'm also very bored with the idea of me thinking and writing. If I'm not doing stuff with the world, I feel like I I don't earn that that solitude uh, and that um, and that uh, you know uh, authority to speak about the world. Uh, I have to be in it one way or another. Further contextualize that work that you've done with the anthologies and with Rawi. Um, you know, in 2020, by our count at the Arab American National Museum, there were about 50 formally published books across poetry, fiction, young adult, and nonfiction. And that, that's really impressive. And, and it's about, you know, every year it seems to be between 40 and 50-ish books by Arab Americans, and, and not just self-published. We're talking like, you know, formally published. And it's really great to just see 
the community growing and, and the things that they're writing about. And it's, it's much broader than I could have imagined even, you know, 10 years ago. So it is an exciting time for Arab American literature. I mean, this last few months since your book has come out, there's been such amazing writing in fiction and nonfiction and um, and poetry. It's, it's so hard to even keep up. It's really great to see the field growing so much. Yeah, and I, I think actually the, the museum taking up the, the prize was a way to cull all of that, even though the categories, the, the books are not for Arab American writers per se. Still wonderful to have these, uh, that opportunity and a way that, what, you know, everybody who can claim this, this category can uh, present to it. And, and you guys get them for free. You get like five copies and you're, you know, it's like you're, you're set. <laughs> <laughs> yes, our collection is uh, it grows uh, by leaps and bounds every year, thanks to the generosity of of publishers and authors worldwide. No, it's fantastic. Um, so let, let's finish up talking about kind of situate you in in space and time here. You are you're in Ann Arbor, but even us in Ann Arbor, we like to see ourselves as part of this Metro Detroit Arab American community. And, uh, you know, you've been here. How long have you been in Ann Arbor now? Yeah, 17 years. That's the longer than I lived anywhere. I mean, I left Libya when I was 15. I never, I don't know, maybe a total time where I lived in it. But one stretch, uh, 17 years um, is, yeah, that's, that's Ann Arbor. So tell me about what it's like to be in this and to raise a daughter in this Arab American community. I mean, you, you lived in Tennessee. Could you imagine having the same life in Tennessee versus, you know, Metro Detroit. I, you know, I went to Knoxville uh, recently. When I was there, I was part of the Muslim community as an early undergrad. And the only mosque was our house rented by uh, students, uh, you know, one of these scrappy, uh, you know, student housing. There was no Arab cultural anything, all university-based and I visited Knoxville now. Well, that's been a long time, but that's 35 years later. There are like three or four mosques. There are other communities. I think there's an Arab community center because there is a an Arab American community evolving. And so things have changed quite a bit. So I imagine even Tennessee is changing. My first taste of, of the Detroit uh, Arab American community was in 1995. It was uh, the 100th anniversary of Khalil Gibran's arrival in the United States. Uh, so it'll be 80. I mean, you know, you've got to celebrate everything with Gibran. <laughs> First time you see his milk teeth. I did not know of that because we're coming up on the centennial of the publication of The Prophet yeah. in a year or two. But I didn't know we celebrated his arrival. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 and that was, uh, it was, uh, there was access was in existence. I think Sally was kind of on her way out of, uh, she was, she, I think Andrew had moved to, uh, we're at Princeton uh, for the Institute for Advanced Studies, but she had set it up and it was at the museum at the DIA. They also brought in Ali Jihad Rasi with some jazz musicians and they wrote these pieces. They were been together for a workshop for like 10 days. They composed pieces for the event and we, the poets, recited one piece, one poem, one piece, one poem. Uh, it was a great event. It couldn't be recorded. The music could not be recorded because all of the right, the, the musicians were, uh, you know, in different, uh, with had different contractual arrangements. They could perform whatever they performed. But, but that was a really wonderful evening. It, it the whole, uh, hall was filled with, uh, 
with Arab Americans, large numbers, and they were thirsty for for artistic representation and to sort of to see the the fusion of Arab music with jazz and to hear Arab American poetry. The poets who read. Uh, it was uh, Elmaz Abinader, Larry Joseph, uh, the late Haas Murwi, myself, and there was a fifth poet. I can't remember who it was. But that's when I met the, the, the community and, uh, you know, seeing Warren, they took us around Warren from one place to another. Was a time when I think Anton Shamas was more involved with the community at the time. When I came here, I, I sort of looked for these connections, and uh, and the, soon after coming here, the museum uh, uh, got started, and then also colleagues were were here. I wish Ann Arbor had more Arab American activity center uh, representation. Things that the students do do not necessarily spill out into the rest of the community. But to have Detroit nearby uh, or Dearborn nearby and to just go there and sort of be in the in that area and to be at the museum as a kind of a, a cultural hub. You know, it was very easy, let's put it this way, for, of course, my daughter lived in the in Libya and Egypt and so on. So her assumptions of her Arab-American identity was just like, it was in the water that she drank because, you know, she drank from uh, Dearborn water. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it was there. She was, she had access to it. She knew it. She knew the museum. She knew our friends. She, uh, she, you know, all of that was just there available to her. And it's a source of, of pride for her. I mean, a lot of places are changing, but I think being in the Arab uh, hub uh, is has its many advantages, and you can step into it um, anytime you want and uh, be part of it as much as you'd like. Uh, so it's been a great advantage, and and, and not a another intrusive one. You know, sometimes when people are in their community, they feel like <laughs> the community is intrusive and sort of surveying yeah. and sort of surveilling them. We don't feel that way. We feel uh, always welcomed and and glad to have the community as a as a resource. I am now going to go. To to the museum archives, I'm going to find the flyer from that 1995 event, and I'll let you know who the other poet was. I did not even know about that, but I know we probably have the documentation at the museum somewhere about it. So you've been very generous with your time this morning. Thank you for, for joining us on the Scene Gene podcast. It was a pleasure exploring your new book, Fugitive Atlas, and talking with you about all kinds of things. Um, it really was a joy to read. I, I will go back to it as I said, is like a, a chronicle of of the last decade. It's really fantastic. So thank you again. And you. Uh, I look forward to seeing you around uh, post-COVID, hopefully. <laughs> All right, maybe we can have uh, coffee in the sunshine soon. That would be amazing, yes. Thank you. Today's episode of the Scene Gene podcast was hosted by Matthew Jaber Stifler. It was produced by Asma Baban, Mohammed Jafar, Maryam Razet. It was edited by Muhammad Jafar with support from Eric Kiska. Our theme song was composed by Isra Darwish and our logo was created by Maisara Abdelhaq. Sinjim is brought to you by the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan Dearborn and the Arab American National Museum. Sinjim is funded by the University of Michigan Arts Initiative and the Ford Community Development Fund. Thank you for listening. <laughs>